We're going to read from John chapter 6, and I will read to you, we're going to read two portions. We're going to read from verse 22 to verse 29, and then we'll turn the page and we'll read, well, on the other page we'll read from verse 60 to 70. Verse 22, on the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Let me just quickly pause here. The previous day was the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus miraculously multiplied loaves. And then in the night, they cross over the Sea of Galilee, the disciples by boat, Jesus by foot. He kind of walked across, which is the kind of thing Jesus can do. And, um, and that's where we pick it up. The crowd are really desperately trying to look for where, where's he gone? We saw him here today, yesterday, and now he's apparently on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So it's a mile across, and he's gone across. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Over in verse 60 the bottom of the facing page. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom Shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to be just coming back to this question of why, why plant churches and sort of going around some of these issues by jumping back into the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at 1 Chronicles 29, which is a chapter all about um, David calling the people of Israel to dedication in the building of the temple, which, as we know, is a kind of... Um, a prototype of what the church was meant to be, a place of meeting with God. So we're going to be getting into that for 
for a number of reasons. One is obviously that even though um, we've already begun, you don't plant a church the day you start meeting. It's not just doesn't just become a church like that overnight. There's a whole process involved in building a church. And I don't think you could necessarily even call this a church yet. Not until in God's time we have um, elders and, um, and the kind of things that you need in place for it to be truly established as a church. But we're in the process. We're just a church plant at the moment. And so in that process, it requires that every one of us know why we're here and what it means to be dedicated and devoted to this call. It's not just for our sake as well that this question is top of my mind, but it's also for what I hope and aspire, or we hope and aspire, will be part of the future of Grace London, that in God's, in God's um, faithfulness, we're going to see not just one church, but maybe a number of churches across London planted, and not just in London, but further afield, as God calls individuals and groups of people to be launched into his, his mission across the world. Um, Christ's ambitions, as I've been keep telling you, are are global. He claims the world as his own. And therefore, if you want to get on board with what Jesus is up to, church planting is how you do that. Now, so that's one of the things why we need to keep coming back to this question. Um, it obviously means that for us it's gonna involve it's gonna involve dedication on every part of our lives, time, money, people. Um, all those kinds of things when I'm looking into the distant future. And it also requires that even right now. So we want to keep coming back to this question. Why are we doing this? What's it for? And keep putting before you the reasons, the answers that are in the Bible for what this is about. But there's a question you have to ask even before that. And this is where we're coming to today, really, our focus, which is more fundamental than why plant churches. And it's this. Why, why choose Christ in the first place? There is obviously a huge cost in following Christ. Although he offers you far more than you could ever lose, nevertheless, you feel the pinch of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus because there's a cost involved. There is, um, it hits every part of your life. It hits your, your ambitions and your, your wallet and there's a cost in terms of your friendships and your relationships and in terms of how people perceive you, and potentially in terms of your career, and all kinds of things. It's also true that, while there's that kind of a cost, there's also this, this mass trend in the UK to be disassociated from Christ. I know that London bucks that trend, but as a whole, it's accurate to say that, that this, this, this country is a post-Christian country. That whereas church-going was, um, was, a, was a huge part of what it meant to be British at one stage, that's no longer the case, and increasingly people are fleeing the churches. Now, it's not true across the board, it's not true in every denomination, it's not true in every city, but it is true as an overall trend. And so it, it forces you to keep thinking, well, why, why choose Christ? If there's this cost, if so many people, if it's going against the flow so much, why, why be dedicated to him in this way? And I... I think it's the most important thing that you can, you can ask because when you're going against the trends, you have to be doubly sure that what you're doing is right, don't you? You have to have such inner resolve, such inner conviction. And this is why we need to keep coming back to this because it's, it's a little bit like being married as well. I, mean, I don't know where you all are on, on, on the spectrum of 
how you see yourself in relation to Jesus, whether you see yourself as not a Christian, a young Christian, or someone who's been walking with Jesus for years. But it's a bit like marriage. When, you, when you're going to get married, there are usually crisis moments. I don't mean in the negative sense. I mean in the, you know, these are the moments of decision. It can be negative for some people. They can panic and all that. But there are moments like when you get engaged and when you walk down the aisle, it can be nerve-wracking moments because you know that these are massive milestones. And it's like that when you come to Jesus. There can be moments of, of decision, moments where you say, okay, this is going to be what I commit myself to. But it's not just like that. When you're married to a person, you keep committing to them every day of your life for the rest of your life. That's what the marriage vow is about. And the same is true also of what it means to be a disciple to Jesus. You keep committing to him every day of your life for the rest of your life. Take up your cross daily and follow me, he says. Now this passage serves really well as a helpful, um, as helpfully sort of opening up this conversation because in it we see this fork in the road for, for various people. On the one hand, the crowds, the massive crowds that were following Jesus disperse and they abandon him en masse, just, just walk away. And I just want to, we'll explore some of the reasons why they do that. But the disciples, at the very end of the passage we read, just the 12, not even all those who were called disciples, there was a wider group who were called disciples because they were very consciously saying, I'm, I'm following Jesus, he's my rabbi. But the 12 keep that commitment. And they become galvanized in that commitment. It's really a fork in the road for everyone. Uh, it's a pivotal moment. And so these 12 are willing to be considered outliers and lone nuts and revolutionaries, to be regarded as, as slightly weird and eccentric because they had become doubly convinced that what they believed about Jesus was true. Whereas everyone else, as the stakes got higher, more and more people dropped out of what it meant to follow him. That's what we see happening in this chapter. I want to begin just by sort of helping you to see why people abandoned Jesus and why they did so en masse in the course of, of John 6. Because I think it would be fair to say that by, by the mo- modern standards of how you judge um, success, Jesus is at this point reaching an all-time low. His followers have, from, from what seems like a very promising moment in his life, he's reached an all-time low where he's, you know, to put it in modern terms, he's, he's got just a handful of followers. And um, you, know, you, you can usually judge someone's popularity by how many people follow them on Twitter or like them on Facebook and all those kinds of things. For Jesus, the stats are abysmally depressing at this point. Just a couple of days ago, actually, I, was, um, I just la- happened across the Twitter account of a man, an American man, who at one stage in the 90s was quite prominent in Christian circles as being well-known as a preacher and prophetic guy. And um, a lot of people would have just known his name, a kind of household name in certain sections of the church. And I, I happened across his Twitter account, and he has all of 24 followers. And the reason being that scandal hit his life about 10 years ago. And as a result, his ministry just blew up. You know, no one's really interested in what he's got to say anymore. Now, that's exactly what we see happening in John 6. Not the scandal of sin, but the scandal of offense. That Jesus has so offended people that they just abandon him en masse. 
And that's the surface reason of what you see happening here. If you ask the question, why are people fleeing from Jesus? The answer is that he's offended them and they're disappointed, basically, in, in, what he, in who he is and what he has to say. You can trace the story through in the chapter. That it begins at the beginning of chapter 6, in verse 2, that a large crowd were following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. So he's a miracle worker. And then the expectations are exceeded even more in the following verses as he feeds them all. And you can imagine when you're a poor person who lives on the breadline, being given a meal miraculously is, is one of the most impressive things you could see. And of course, because you're Jewish, it reminds you of what happened to your ancestors in the wilderness when God provided manna from heaven. So they think this guy is as great as Moses. And it reaches such a frenzy of excitement and elation at who he is that come verse 15 of the chapter, it says that that Jesus was perceiving them that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew to the mountain by himself. So they got to the point where there was so much of a buzz surrounding Jesus that he's flavor of the month that they want to make him king. And everything then seems to unravel and go wrong. He crosses the Sea of Galilee and disappears and the, the, the crowds come in search of him. And they ask him what seems to be an innocent question. They say, when, Rabbi, when did you come here in verse 25? And then for some reason, the atmosphere changes. And he begins to offend them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So he says, basically, you're only here because I gave you a meal, aren't you? you imagine if you came to our house on Wednesday, and we always feed you guys for life group, and I say, I know why you're here, really. You don't really care about this, do you? You care about the meal which my wife cooks. Now, it'd probably be the last time you ever come, and that's basically what Jesus is saying to them at this point. It's offensive, isn't it? And it, it goes from bad to worse, because if you, as you trace the story through, he starts saying weird things. He starts talking about how he's the bread of life, and he talks about having, uh, verse 37, how he's come down, um, sorry, not verse 37, yeah, verse 38, how I've come down from heaven. And they're, they're scratching their heads and thinking, who is this guy? What does he think he is? We thought he was like a great prophet or something or the Messiah. But now he's saying, well, he's saying, it sounds like he's saying he's God. And it goes from bad to worse. He goes on in verse uh, 51. It reaches the, the point of, of no return when he says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he's saying, basically, you need to come and eat me. And, um, and then that's how you get life. And obviously these guys think, this guy's a crazy, crazy man. He's, he's into cannibalism. We're not really interested in this kind of teaching. So whatever he did yesterday, as impressive as that might be, we're just going to run away from him. So on the surface of things, you see that there's a scandal, offense, and all that going on, and they run away from him. But there's a much deeper reason for why these people abandon Jesus. And it's this. That Jesus deliberately begins to sift the crowd. You know, if you put, you know, lumpy flour into a sieve and start shaking, the lumps are are held and the flour drops through. That's essentially what Jesus is doing here. He starts sieving the people. Why? Well, because he begins to suspect the reasons that they're 
they're, they're with him. He looks into the heart of man. The Gospel of John says early on that Jesus knew the heart of man. And he starts looking into the hearts of these people who are following him. And he's not content to build a mass following. And he starts to take control of the situation. From this frenzy of people following him, he cuts across it and, and just totally smashes his following apart. Now this is surprising because we live in a day and age where people will do anything for popularity. Celebrities manage their public image by employing full-time PR people to, to constantly put across an image so that they can stay on the front page and stay in the public eye. Politicians change their policies at the slightest indication of a wind change in the public opinion on issues. And suddenly, the politicians try and make out like they were thinking this all the way along. People will do anything to avoid living by conviction and to embrace living by popularity. But what we're seeing with Jesus here is the very opposite. That it's his decision to repel as many people as possible at this point. Because he doesn't want them following him for the wrong reasons. I want to explore some of what those reasons are in just a minute. But just look at those verses at the end of the chapter. Because this is where I really want to focus. It says in verse 66 that after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So the crowd leaves, the outer circle. Many of the disciples leave. One of the more inner circles, they start to abandon him. And then he turns to the twelve, the very inner circle. And he says, do you want to go away as well? And then Simon Peter answers, Lord... To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This this is it. This is the heart of of the fork, of of the the distinction between those who are just fans of Jesus and those who are followers. And I want you to see three things that come out from this chapter as to why why Jesus sieves and, 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 and separates out the crowd in this way. And the implications that that then has for whether we're disciples of Jesus and why we choose Christ. You know, do you want to be in that group with the 12 or do you want to be with the crowd who who run away? Are you truly wanting to be dedicated to him? Well, here are the three things, the motives that Jesus has in, in separating people out. First of all, Jesus wanted them to to follow him for the right reasons and not for the wrong ones. It was easy for him. It was the easiest thing in the world for him to gather a crowd. He did not lack ability. He was an awesome preacher. And not just a great preacher, he could also just, at the touch, heal a sick person, say a word, and the dead would be raised. It was not hard to gather a crowd. And to be honest... It's not even that hard today for many people to gather a crowd. Crowds don't really prove much. Just yesterday, um, my wife and I were flicking through a little book of the best letters that have been written to the Guardian newspaper. And C, with her sharp eyes, picked out this one, which, uh, which said, saying that One Direction is the best boy band is like saying that Chlamydia is the best STD. Uh, <laughs> the point being that there are many things in which you can gather a crowd, and it's not 
doesn't really prove much. It doesn't prove much in terms of talent. It doesn't prove much in terms of worthiness. It doesn't prove much in terms of conviction. None of these things. Jesus knows that. And for him, the issue is not, are you a follower, but are you a disciple? And he wants to distinguish between those who follow him for the right reasons and those who follow him for the wrong reasons. This is a huge and pressing question for the church today. And for people who call themselves believers. There's widespread parts of the church that are seeing surges of church growth for all kinds of different reasons. And not all of them good. And the pressure as well, in in a wider context of people fleeing church, the pressure is to find new and innovative ways to grow churches. To try and grow churches by giving people what they feel they need, basically. And that's exactly the pressure Jesus felt. If he just gave them more bread, he would have a bigger and bigger following. He could have had the whole nation, quite literally, eating out of his hands. All he had to do was continue feeding them with what they felt they wanted. But the saying is true, isn't it? That what you catch them on, you have to feed them on. If people coming to you for this purpose alone, that's all they want from you. Jesus isn't satisfied to gather a crowd by just giving them and filling their faces with more bread. He wants real disciples. And he knows that the crowd is only interested in their immediate felt needs. The grumbling of their stomachs that would just occur every few hours when the bread has entered their system and they're hungry again. They're just interested in their felt needs. But then you contrast that with with what the twelve are aware of and what Peter puts into words here. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the distinction here, guys. That the crowds might come for getting their earthly, visceral, temporary needs met. But disciples come to Jesus because he's got the words of life. And that then has a couple more implications for what's meant by this phrase, the words of life. Or eternal life, as Peter puts it. One is that he's talking about something which lasts. The bread was a temporary fix for a momentary problem. But to be a true disciple of Jesus is someone who has their mind on eternity, who has their mind on beyond just this life and its present momentary troubles. And this is a theme that keeps resonating through the Gospels. It's present in so much of Jesus' teaching. Don't just think about now. It's true when he teaches about sin and temptation. He says, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, because it's better that you lose them than that you enter the, the fires of hell. It's better that you sacrifice now so that you'll gain in eternity. When he's talking about money, he says, give, give, give. Lay it all up as treasure in heaven where it cannot be destroyed. It's a constant theme through the Bible that to be a true disciple is someone whose mind is fixed on what lasts rather than what's a temporary. And Peter's grasps that. He says, you have the words of eternal life. There's something that you can offer that will never crumble, fade, or die away. And friends, I want you 
this is something that you have to constantly be weighing in your life. Am I making decisions for, t- for, for gain now or for gain in eternity? It applies with everything you do. The disciple is always wanting to invest into Christ because they know that they can't lose what they put into Christ. Your dreams, your ambitions, your money, your time, your effort, your relationships, everything. Is Christ at the center? Are you doing it for his glory? In that case, it can never fade away. That's one implication of what Peter's saying. A second is this. That it's carried in this word life. He doesn't just mean you have the words of eternal existence. The word life, whenever you see it in the Gospels, is not just about ongoing existence, about not dying. It's about so much more than that. It's about a quality of life that is offered in Christ, that has to do with peace with God, that has to do with peace in yourself, that has to do with relationships that are transformed, that has to do with satisfaction and joy and everything that we lost at the fall. And no, you don't get it all returned to you in one go the minute you come to Jesus, but it's a growing thing and it's something that you find fulfilled in eternity with Christ in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the disciple sees. And that's also what we have to see if we're going to be so motivated and dedicated to the furthering of Christ's mission in the world through the planting of churches and all that that entails for you personally and for us as a a church. What is it that you're holding on to that's just like the bread, the temporary pleasures of life? That's the first thing then. Jesus says... Jesus, he shows us that he wants people to follow him for the right reasons and not the wrong ones. Secondly, he wants them to follow him for who he was and not who he wasn't. Or who he is and not who he isn't, we could say. Here's what I mean. That it seems to me that the crowd are, are basically wanting a savior, a messiah, who, who conforms to the image of what they wish they could have. That's why they're about to make him king. That's why they're they're so obsessed with his miracle-working power and these kinds of things. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the film The Stepford Wives. It tells the story of a little family that moved to a town called Stepford in Connecticut. And there, the main character, Joanne, she begins to notice, as she looks around this town, that all the women are basically a little bit too perfect. They look perfect, they act perfect, they're perfectly... um, concerned with the needs of their families and their husbands and all these kinds of things and they just seem a little bit two-dimensional and even the women that she knew as new women to the town who she was friends with who were quite ordinary over time they begin to change and suddenly they become like the women of the town and as she digs around and grows a little bit more interested in what's happening here she comes to this realization that the other women in the town are are actually robots that the women have died and they're robots i know it's a slightly absurd Story, but it's quite an interesting film. It's basically a criticism of 1950s family models and so on. But the point is that the, the Stepford Wives are, are women made to not really be women, not really to have a mind of their own, but rather to serve every whim of their husbands. And here's the thing. There's a lot of people who think that God should be like that. Who believe that God should be a, a kind of a step for God. That we don't really want God as he presents himself to us. We want God as we wish him to be. 
The irony, of course, is that so many of the aspirations of what people have about how they wish God was come from God's own self-revelation. So they steal bits of the Bible to construct a God of their own making. This is exactly what we see going on in this passage. They don't want Jesus as he is. They want him as they wish he was. And he, in discerning this, begins to cut across all of their their hopes and expectations and their aspirations about what their Savior would be like by offending them with the reality of who he is and most prominently by just talking about himself and how great he is. On the lips of anyone else, it would sound arrogant. On Christ's lips, it's perfectly appropriate. But look at some of the things he says to them. He says to them in verse 29 that you have to believe in him. Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. He's kind of talking about himself in the third person, like posh people do. You've got to believe in him whom he sent. It's me. And then he sort of goes on, and he starts opening this up a little bit more. In verse 38, and he starts saying, I've come down from heaven. These are the same verses we were looking at earlier. And then he goes, he goes on, he tells them to eat him. Now, you see how the crowd react to this. They Look at verse 41 onwards. They say, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? They cannot, they can't accept his teaching about himself. Because they don't want the Messiah as, as given to them, they want a Messiah as formed in their own image. Peter, on the other hand, just to contrast this again, Peter looks at this very differently. He says, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He's saying, in effect, it doesn't really matter how we feel about what you are. It only matters what's true about who you are. And we know you're the Holy One of God. And this, friends, is is at the heart of what discipleship is. To be devoted to Christ on his own terms. To know him for who he shows himself to be. And all the offensive corners of his personality and character that we, that grate against um, the modern way of thinking. The teachings that you kind of ignore or suppress. This is what it means to be a disciple, is to embrace him as the Holy One of God. And it's also what is laying upon us as a calling, as a church, along with so many of our brothers and sisters across the world, to be presenting Christ as he is, not as the people of London wish he was. It would be easy to form a Jesus along the lines of what people wish he was. And you could grow a church that way. But I'm interested in the reality and I hope, you and I, I hope you all are interested in the reality of Christ. The only way to know him then is, is to be consumed with how he's presented, how he's shown to us in the word of God. The Bible is all about Jesus. Beginning to end, you can explore the character of Jesus. 
as he's revealed himself to us. Finally, he wants us to follow him for the right reasons, not the wrong ones. He wants us to follow him for who he is and not who he isn't. And finally, Jesus wanted the crowds, he wanted us also to grasp the offense of the gospel and not ego-stroking self-help. This is the kind of clincher, really, of what's going on here. That there are basically two kinds of, of religion in the world. If you set up two buckets, you could think of it this way. That there are all the religions in the world that say, this is what you must do to be saved. And then there's the religion, the one religion in the world that says, this is what I've done to save you. And it sounds arrogant, doesn't it, to single out Christianity and say, look, this is, this is distinct, this is unique among all the world faiths. But listen, this is why we have to do this. The crowd come to Jesus and they assume that he is just offering a teaching somewhat along the lines of what they'd always known, which is, look, if you do these things, you'll be okay. So they ask him in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? The problem is that behind that question is an assumption. I can change my life. And at one at the same time, that is both the most appealing and the most depressing idea that exists in the world today. It's appealing because people always want to be offered hope and the potential of growth, and the potential that they can change themselves. This is why the self-help movement and the TED Talks and all that kind of stuff has just boomed, because people are offering you tidbits of how you can change your life, how you can grow yourself. Some of it has wisdom, but so much of it is about offering you a ladder of of growth, of development, of personal development. And that is the core of what all the religions on this planet are about, apart from ours. The problem, of course, with the whole idea of, of helping yourself to grow, of embracing a code, of embracing a ladder, as it were, to climb up, is that ultimately, let's say you get up a rung, You then feel great about yourself, and you get the credit. Jesus, in ways the crowd don't really understand, is cutting right across those assumptions. Look at his answer there. He says, this is the work of God, verse 29, that you believe in him whom he sent. Nobody really wants to hear this stuff. But this is what makes our faith so awesomely unique. Peter puts it another way. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? He's saying, I could search the world over. Listen to the teachings of every guru and teacher and rabbi and master and whatever. And they'd all be basically offering different versions of the same thing. Lord, to whom shall we go? He doesn't need to exhaust the full range of what's available in the world because he knows that humanity basically at its heart is proud. We want to find a way of bettering ourselves. 
And so every religion is basically going to be an expression of that pride, which in a roundabout way is just a, a way of worshipping yourself, even if on the face of it you're, you're saying, I'm worshipping God by living this way or that way. It's really just a roundabout way of improving your own life and worshipping yourself. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We're getting to the very heart here of why why the gospel is so precious and why you should not be ashamed to acknowledge the uniqueness of Christ. I think few things are more likely to make a Christian feel slightly embarrassed today than this. The idea that that our, our faith is actually better than anything else out there. You saw even on the back of the, um, the Paris shootings and the reaction, Je suis Charlie, and then all the people sort of responding with all these counter-arguments saying, yeah, but we don't want to rubbish Islam and all this kind of stuff. There's all this hand-wringing in the West about what it means to be tolerant. To be tolerant, is it to embrace open critique of Islam or is to be tolerant to embrace Islam? And there's all these people just basically arguing about who's more tolerant and who really believes in freedom. But the Christian can stand back and stand aside and say, look, in one sense it doesn't really matter because my eyes are on Jesus and and he's better than anything else out there. If Jesus were just offering you a teaching and a moral code, you could put it in the bucket with all the rest of the moral codes in history. And, And some of them are amazing. Some of them have shaped nations. And think of Taoism and and Confucianism and all these kinds of uh, that, that have stood the test of time and they're not, they're not things that you can't just sort of rubbish or ignore and if we were to put Jesus in the bucket like that then fine, it'd just be one among many but there is something unrepeatable and something that cannot be replicated in Christianity and it is this, it is the historical facts that surround the person and the life of Jesus that he was a man in history And that he did something which could never be done by anybody else that changed the course of history and changes your history. And this is why, in the earlier verses, he said this to them. And this this is going to lead very helpfully into us taking communion in a minute. He said, verse 50, This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is pointing us continually back to the sacrifice of himself. It's not a teaching at its heart. It's an historical event at its heart. It's an achievement. It's a victory. And that is why a disciple of Jesus knows they don't need to look anywhere else. Because no one else on the planet has ever died for your sin. And that is why we are unashamed to publicize Jesus as the only way to life. This is why we have to have a compulsion and a, and a passion and an excitement about being on mission with Jesus. Because this has happened 
it changes the implication of every individual's future if they but believe. This is why we plant churches and this is why we want to plant more churches. This is why you need to look at your life and, and ask yourself, is Christ first? Because if not, is he not worthy? Hasn't he purchased you at the cost of his own blood? You could look around the world and, and listen to Buddha and Taoism and all these things. But listen, the guys who taught that stuff, none of them did this for you. This is why Christ is so unique. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to come back to that marriage analogy at the beginning. It's to be a lover of Christ and to know that in entering into a relationship with Him, an exclusive relationship, you have found something sweeter and better than anything you could find anywhere else. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life.